You should have an essential input that's also less pedestrian and more quantitative. And that's utilizing models, Andrew, that identify how much of a premium a 10-year treasury should command for the length of time of that 10-year risk. And they're called term premium models. And, and currently, the term premium models that we use show an incremental 30 to 40 basis points of further cheapening in the 10-year U.S. Treasury. I mean, put another way, you said the yield is at 4.35%, the high in the cycle. That probably belongs closer to 4.75. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Welcome to another IBKR podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Wilkinson. This week's guest is Revu Capital's Chief Investment Officer. Huge welcome, Neil Azus. How are you, Neil? I'm great. Thank you for having me as always, Andrew. Great to be here with you guys. You're very welcome. Must mean that there's an FOMC meeting coming up. So how do you see things heading into next week's Federal Reserve meeting? And what's the market pricing now for the Federal Reserve, Neil? Sure. So firstly, Andrew, uh, the Federal Reserve is in its blackout period prior to the September 20th FOMC meeting. Following the Fed's annual Jackson Hole Symposium in late August, uh, the Federal Reserve hot dove spectrum spoke in unison. They signaled no hike for the upcoming FOMC meeting. And the market, Andrew, could not agree more. For example, the probability of an interest rate hike is only 3%. And historically, it's very rare for the Fed to deviate from the market pricing when they go into that blackout period prior to the meeting. So we view the upcoming meeting as a fait accompli. That is something that's already happened or been decided. And then you have to ask the question, what's next? Well, the next probability of an interest rate hike at the November 1st meeting is down to 32%. And finally, the probability of an interest rate hike at the December 13th meeting is a paltry 7%. So if you add up that cumulative probability, Andrew, it's less than a 40% chance of one hike now by the end of the year. In market pricing language, that's the same thing as saying the hiking cycle is over when there's only a one in three chance of hiking. After that, the market's pricing the first interest rate cut now between May and June of 2024. And as a reminder, historically, the Fed has cut an interest rate six and a half months after the last hike. So in this case, if July of this summer was truly the last hike, it wouldn't be the first cut for another 10 or 11 months from now. So that, that's the very definition of higher for longer. The Fed has engineered the market where it wants to be. But at the same time, it highlights that the asymmetry is if the Fed pulls forward cuts from June or May of June of next year in by three or four months to match that historical average of six and a half months after the last hike. So basically, they may, they may not. I think that sums up very well, well that, that everybody believes that the top of the, the, the hiking cycle is somewhere near in sight. We've also got the summary of economic projections to be published alongside the meeting, Neil. How important is that report? It's a quarterly report. What narrative would you be looking for within what's known as the SEP? 
sure. Uh, that's a pretty fair question, Andrew, uh, because the market is still pricing, as I said, a one in three chance of a hike by the end of the year. So one way to help reconcile that is through the summary of economic projections, or aka the SEP or SEP, as you just referred to it, which the Fed publishes only at their quarterly FOMC meetings. So in this case, next week. And therefore, I guess I would say it takes on a higher importance than normal. My view is, is that the Fed will, quote unquote, thread a needle. Uh, I believe the likely balance is for the Fed to show no additional hikes in 2023, but less easing in 2024, i.e. higher for longer. And also, they could incrementally reduce their inflation forecast in those projections. And, and collectively, this allows for several things. Uh, firstly, it gives the Fed time to see the impact of the lagged effects of monetary policy to the end of this year. And secondly, it does not allow the market to preempt easing and loosen financial conditions. That's a good balance. Well, that brings me perfectly on to my question about the 10-year yield, Neil. That's a, that's a very powerful point you made at the very end there. So we've seen the 10-year yield rise to about 4.35, probably the highest in this cycle. That's not necessarily what I would expect heading into basically the end of monetary tightening. Is that what you expected? What do you make of longer term yields at these levels? Yeah, sure. I appreciate this question more than you know, Andrew, as it's critical for portfolio construction. So therefore, just bear with me for a minute in this discussion. It's a bit longer than some of the other questions you just asked. So broadly speaking, the market is still trying to discover quote unquote, the terminal rate on the 10-year U.S. Treasury, or what yield level will it ultimately top out at for this cycle? And, and I'm personally not pushing back on what the market is saying. And for example, we're maintaining a maturity profile for our fixed income investments below five years as a result of that. And here's why. I want you to think about this in a traditional accounting T-square format, where supply is the liability and demand is the asset. So what are the primary supply and demand inputs currently? Well, on the supply side, as you know, we have significant U.S. Treasury supply and continued U.S. deficit expansion. The deficit horse has left the barn. And secondly, we have further currency weakness in Japan and China. And as a result of those countries being forced to defend their currencies, one thing they do is sell down their foreign fixed income holdings, including U.S. Treasuries. So the supply profile is not great. And also on the demand side, that profile is also less than optimal currently. Uh, I mean, there's a long list, but if you, if you go down it, you'll see that overseas official investors, they've been focusing on buying their U.S. Uh, paper in short-term T-bills. The banks here in the United States, as you know, are not adding to their securities portfolios at the moment, you know, from the leftover regional bank issues earlier in the year. Uh, there are some countries that are running a budget surplus all of a sudden, such as Japan and Germany. So they're no longer trading with a surplus to be able to buy more foreign fixed income. You start to continue to go down the rabbit hole, Andrew, and it just keeps going in the same direction. So, for example, systematic strategies, they remain short and their signal to be short is deeply embedded. You look at discretionary macro strategies. They have no conviction. P&L is not great this year, so there's not a lot of cushion to buy fixed income. The big real money asset managers, they've been trading from the long side all year and continue to lose money. So they're kind of in wait and see mode. And really the only marginal you know, buy and hold investor of duration is U.S. households. But if you just take a smell test and, and think about it in practicality, what's prevailed over the last 10 years? Low interest rates. So optically, a 5% coupon sounds a lot better than a 4% coupon for a baby boomer. So they're a little bit uh, hesitant to buy right now as well. 
Okay, this is why I meant to bear with me. Now the analysis should not purely be qualitative or the bean counting that I just went through on that list. You should have an essential input that's also less pedestrian and more quantitative. And that's utilizing models, Andrew, that identify how much of a premium a 10-year treasury should command for the length of time of that 10-year risk. And they're called term premium models. And, and currently, the term premium models that we use show an incremental 30 to 40 basis points of further cheapening in the 10-year U.S. Treasury. I mean, put another way, you said the yield is at 4.35%, the high in the cycle. That probably belongs closer to 4.75. And now, Andrew, there are many models, and you can debate the efficacy of each one, including the ones that we use or construct. But the critical takeaway is that most currently are skewed towards a further cheapening in the 10-year yield up to that 4.75 range. So collectively, Andrew, between that supply and demand T-square that I sketched out and these term premium models, it's still too early to extend the maturity profile of a risk-free portfolio as yields in the long end are still headed higher, albeit incrementally. Neil, can I ask you, what keeps you awake at night these days from an economic perspective? There's not one data point or segment of economics that keep me awake at night, Andrew. However, like most other citizens of this land right now, I'm concerned that the deficit horse has left the barn and it's never coming back. And it doesn't really matter whether a Democrat or a Republican is in charge. They're just going to spend and they're going to spend big. And the worst part, Andrew, about that risk profile is that the Federal Reserve becomes less relevant in shaping policy and will be forced into a long-term defensive posture regarding defending interest rates. Meaning when you combine the executive branch of the government with both bodies of Congress, we now have over 500 people with very little business or economic experience setting policy instead. The Fed not being able to solve for that, I think will be a critical theme over the next decade or so. And it might put us in this rolling environment of having to defend inflation versus interest rates, you know, every two to four years. It's just a completely different profile. So that keeps me up at night as to who is in charge of that profile. But you're still getting a lot of sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and finally, Neil, do you want to tip your hat on the outlook for the stock market for the remainder of 2023? Of course, Andrew. I'm always happy to share with you what our crystal ball is saying. So uh, firstly, a caveat. I have no idea what happens between now and the end of the third quarter or over the next one to three weeks. But here are my current inputs that lead me to be pretty constructive or bullish on equities uh, into the end of the year. Uh, as I sketched out a, a earlier in this conversation, the Fed hiking cycle is likely over. That's important. Number two, economically, we're still benefiting from what I call the trampoline landing or the stimuli that rarely gets mentioned or included in market analysis, despite the fact that the fiscal support is over $1 trillion currently amongst a number of programs. Thirdly, I still believe that the overriding economic theme is still in disinflation. And as inflation falls into the 2 to 3% range over the next several months, historically, the stock market's multiple typically expands two to four turns when it transitions from down from a 3 to 4% inflation range. So I'm not sure why this time would be different, especially as it coincides with the last quarter of the year, which brings me to the next supporting data point, which is Q4 seasonals. I learned a long time ago to not cloud the issues, Andrew, with the facts. And the facts are 
that the Q4 seasonal period is typically bullish, regardless of what the underlying disease of the month club is or other negative data points. So that combination is meaningful to me. And, and finally, I look at a lot of different metrics here. And one that we construct is our own composite of volatility across stocks, bonds, foreign exchange, and crude oil. And that composite has now fallen in the last several weeks, well below its long-term average. You know, that total combination just keeps me constructive or bullish or certainly very open-minded, Andrew, about that typical fourth quarter rally that mystifies people. My guest today has been Neil Azus, CIO and founder at Revue Macro. Thank you very much, Neil. My pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Talk to you guys soon. Okay. Thank you very much, folks. Don't forget, listen out for more from us at IBKR Podcasts. And don't forget, wherever you download your podcasts, please do leave us a review. Bye for now, everybody. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at IBKRpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit IBKR.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and is necessary, seek professional advice. Futures are not suitable for all investors. The amount you may lose may be greater than your initial investment. Before trading futures, please read the CFTC Risk Disclosure. A copy and additional information are available at ibkr.com. There is a substantial risk of loss in foreign exchange trading. The settlement date of foreign exchange trades can vary due to time zone differences and bank holidays. The interest rate on borrowed funds must be considered when computing the cost of trades across multiple markets. Markets.